So we're going to take some more questions from the crowd. This will be part three of our questions and answer. And I was going to try to get through three, but when I finished my notes with the second question, I'm like, well, maybe I should wait uh, for next Thursday. So I'm anticipating two tonight and then two next Thursday. But I do want to say that questions are welcome anytime. I just talked to somebody right before the lesson who had more questions to turn in. I said, it'll only cost you five bucks because you're late. But I will keep them. And then we're going to try to make this a regular part of our, our curriculum going forward. So send me questions as you have them, and then we will get to those as we're able. But let's dive in here. So question number one is from Mark chapter 10, and it is out of verse 18. The question actually centers around a question that Jesus asks but before we look at that verse in particular, I want to give you the context of this particular conversation. So let's read together Mark chapter 10, verse 17 to 23, and let's, let's find out what Jesus is, is teaching us through this interaction with this man. Verse 17, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. As you're making your way, in particular, through the gospel accounts, it's always fascinating to take note of the responses that Jesus gives to people, and in particular, the questions that he asks. All of his questions are purposeful, and they're designed not to gather information, because Jesus knows everything, even before he asks the question, but is, they're designed to draw out of the listener something from inside of them, or in this case, to expose their true condition, which is the circumstance with this particular gentleman. So I want to read through the full question on the Q&A card, and then we'll, we'll, give, um, we'll kind of peel back the layers to these, these verses. So the card said this, in Mark 10, 18, Jesus asks, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. But we know that Jesus is 100% God, so isn't he also good? And so we affirm, yes, Jesus is God, and we recently taught on that, so if you need references or more uh, verses to walk through both the Old and the New Testament that teach that Jesus is, is God, he's equal with the Father, and he's also equal with the Spirit, you can come and ask me for that. So when this man comes up to Jesus... It actually says that he ran up to him. So there's some urgency here, which is interesting. He runs up to him, and as soon as this man approaches, 
Jesus already knows everything about this individual. He knows his past. He knows his thoughts, his beliefs. He also knows his wrong beliefs about God, which is what Jesus is trying to expose here. This man is self-deceived. And so all the way through these couple of verses, you see Jesus highlighting things for this man to see his own condition. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, whether from a spiritual setting or just a social setting, that someone has such a glaring issue in their life, but they don't see it. And so this is what Jesus, in, in, a, in, a, in an act of compassion, is showing this man his true spiritual condition. So I want to show you the, the surrounding conversation, and then we'll come back to verse 18 at the end. This interesting because as you see the interchange between this man and Christ, the statement in verse 18 is almost like a side thought. It's almost could be put in parentheses because he mentions something as a almost like an offhanded comment, even though we know that's not true of Christ. But he then goes into his full answer in the verses around it. So look what he says here. In verse 17, what does the man want to know? What does he ask? Yeah. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So this guy is concerned about his soul. That's a good thing. I mean, he's, he's concerned enough to come and ask the question. We're going to skip over verse 18 and come back to it. In verse 19, so Jesus is responding to that question and essentially saying, okay, so you want to go to heaven, then what you must do is keep all of God's commandments. And he tells him, you know what the commandments are. And he lists a few of them. He says, you must keep them all perfectly. That's the implication in order for you to be qualified to step into God's presence. So how does the guy respond to Jesus when the law is brought to him in verse 20? Yeah. I have kept all of these from my youth up. Now imagine a circumstance where you are sharing the gospel with somebody and like we have modeled for you here, we, we go to the Ten Commandments to reveal their, their sin and their need for Christ, and you walk them through the Ten Commandments, and the person responds and goes, oh yeah, I've kept all of those since I was a kid. What would you think at that point? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he could be lying, possibly. What else could be going on? Mm-hmm. Maybe he doesn't understand the seriousness of it. Yep. Yeah, so he, he set the bar so low with what God has required that he thinks he has been acceptable in his lifestyle. So what Jesus is, is doing here is he takes him to the law, says keep the commandments. Remember in Galatians, it tells us that the, the law is a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. That's why we always want to use God's law. We need to talk about sin and we need to talk about condemnation in order for the good news to actually be good news. So Jesus takes him to the law. He says, I've kept all of the law since I have been a youth. And so Jesus decides to challenge him on that. He says, oh, so you've kept all of the commandments. I'm, I'm inferring some 
uh, things here be, between the conversation. And so he says, let's try idolatry. So Jesus chooses money. Verse 21, but before he challenges him, this is really interesting. We get a, an understanding of, of Jesus' view of this man. What does verse 21 teach us about Jesus here? What does it first tell us before he speaks? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? It says that he felt a love for him. Now, I want you guys to consider the significance of that. This man just confessed to the creator of the universe that he's perfect. And yet he's an idolater, which Jesus is about to expose. So it's like the most heinous sin you can commit. And he is standing before God himself, and he doesn't even see his idolatry. And then it says that Jesus felt a love for him. That's amazing. The heart of God on display when there's just the grossness of, of sin is that Jesus has compassion on those who are self-deceived. He says the, he felt a love for him, and then he said to them, oh, well, there is one thing that you lack. Go, sell all of your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Now, this is not a general principle of how to get into heaven, right? Jesus is not teaching that you have to give away all your possessions to get, to get into heaven. What he's doing is he's exposing the issue for this particular gentleman. Your issue is money. Give up everything that you have. Be willing to let go of your idol, what you are holding above me. If you're willing to turn from that, if you're willing to let go of that sin and prove it by following me, then you will have eternal life. That's what he's offering to him. Verse 22, it says, But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. So all throughout these few verses, Jesus is revealing to this man what his true condition is. Now let's go back and look at, at verse 18, actually at the end of, of verse 17 to get to the, the original question. So how does this man address Jesus when he comes up at the end of verse 17? What does he address him as? What does he call him? Yes. He calls him good teacher, right? Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus' response in verse 18, he says, Why do you call me good? He knows, remember, he knows everything about this man, he knows his issue with idolatry. He knows his issue with money. He knows that this man needs saving from his sin, and he challenges him on another level. Even before he answers the question, he goes, wait a minute. Only God is good. You know what Jesus is telling this man? He's saying, are you willing? You just called me good. He says, are you willing to confess me as God, because there's only one that's good. A lot of people try to have Jesus both ways, right? He's a good teacher, he's a moral example, and yet they don't recognize him as sovereign Lord. 
Jesus says, you, you don't have the option to be in both of those worlds. Why do you call me good? Are you willing to recognize that I am actually God? That's what he's trying to show this man is that he doesn't understand who Jesus really is. And sadly, he walks away from the only one that can give him life. What's fascinating about this particular interchange is that Jesus is presenting the gospel in the middle of this conversation. So he affirms that there is no one good except God. So we know that Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Every single one of you in this room, you, me, all of us, we have broken God's law. You guys have broken God's law multiple times today. Even if you're a believer in Christ, you are still wrestling with sin all throughout today. This is how often we fall short. So Jesus tells us that everybody has sin, but yet he has compassion to save sinners. And here is this man standing in front of Christ, and Jesus is willing to give him eternal life if he lets go of this sin, and he's not willing to do it. And so I, I, I want you all to consider your spiritual condition tonight. Is there anything in your life that you're holding on to that is of greater value than Jesus to you? Jesus says, you need to let go of that idolatry and confess me as Lord if you want to have eternal life. This was a very specific conversation with a man who had a specific weakness for money. But the principle is the same for all of us. Have you come to Christ? Have you confessed him as Lord? Because if you haven't, he who has the Son has life, but he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So don't hang on to sin or you'll lose your soul. So any questions as we kind of transition here, as we kind of walk through that, the, the, um, the nuances of that conversation, does that bring up any other questions that you would want clarified off of that conversation? Okay. So with that, I want you guys to turn to Genesis chapter 6. We'll look at question number 2. beginning of Genesis chapter 6, we have a phrase here, specifically in verse 6, that says that God was sorry that he had made man. So let me give you the full question on the card again, just for context. In Genesis 6.6, it says, the Lord was sorry that he had made man. How is this possible when he knows all things? Wouldn't the fall and sinful humans be a part of his perfect plan. Now, as a side note, before we get into this particular passage, what I appreciate about both of these questions tonight is that you have somebody that's reading their Bible and they're thinking about what they're reading. I know I have to fight against that when I do my Bible reading. Sometimes you get at the end of it, you have no idea what I just read, right? So thinking critically about the Scriptures, asking questions of the Bible... 
uh, it, that's a good and encouraging spiritual discipline that's, that's on display here. This particular verse in Genesis 6 is actually one of a lot of discussion, not only because of, of the question that was asked on the card, which was, how could God be sorry for something that he knew was going to happen? That's, that's really what we're looking at. So that's the question at hand. But I, I want to kind of show you some of the other questions that people have brought uh, along the same line here. Some people have actually gone to Genesis 6-6 to prove that God can change. In other words, God changes his mind, he changes his plan, and so he's now pivoting and he's, he's doing something else that he did not anticipate. Or even worse, some people have gone so far as to say that God doesn't know what the future is going to hold. It's not quite as... It doesn't have quite as much traction today as it did about 15 years ago. But the problem with false teaching is that once it shows up, it never leaves. It just kind of accumulates. It's, it's pretty insidious. There's a heresy called open theism, where God is, is watching history unfold like the rest of us. And then he responds to what he sees, even though he's still powerful and, and can do what he wants. They take away from him the fact that he, he knows exactly what's going to happen in the future. So let's, let's start with what we affirm, like we did with the other question. Number one, the Bible clearly tells us that God knows everything. There's nothing that God does not know. Everything that God knows, he never had to gather information. In fact, the thing that really kind of humbled me when I studied God's knowledge is there are several passages in the Bible that tell us that God knows what would have happened if different decisions had been made. So for all of you who are always impressed with the multiverse and the cartoons and stuff, that puts all of that into child's play. The fact that God knew what would have happened if different decisions had been made with every decision in the history of mankind is astounding. So we affirm that he knows everything. We also know that God doesn't change. The Bible is also clear. God himself says, I do not change. But one thing you have to understand, when we talk about God's character not changing, we, we're not saying that God is static. We're not saying that he is unresponsive. So what you see here is that as our creator, God has stepped into human time and even with the Lord Jesus Christ, stepped into human space, and he, in, he interacts with his creation, which is amazing. In fact, because he is willing to and desires to interact with us, it intensifies his grief when we sin. It's not that he doesn't know it's going to happen, it's that when he sees it take place and sees it actually unfold, then it grieves his heart when it comes to pass. So when you look at verse 6, one way to translate the word sorry is just that. It can actually be grief or it can be pain. So he knew that mankind would sin. It was part of his providential plan. But knowing that it was going to happen intensifies his grief when he actually sees it happen. So 
I want to read you here the, the context of, of Genesis 6, and then we'll, we'll take a look at some of the details here. So starting at verse 1, it says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he, is also, he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So in eternity past, God had this sovereign plan to bring about mankind, knowing that we would choose to rebel and that he would step in and be the payment for sin. So we always knew that that was going to take place. We have to be careful because when we we look at God's character. God cannot do anything that is evil. There's nothing in him that can be any kind of darkness. So evil doesn't proceed from God. God does not cause evil to happen, but he sovereignly directs even evil choices to bring about something that is good and, and holy. And so as we look at the the analogy of Scripture and we, we, we ask the question, why would God allow people to rebel, the only answer that we can land on scripturally is that it brings him glory when he redeems sinners. God's character as a redeemer is on display because man fell into sin. He is more glorious because he steps in as the sacrificial lamb. In fact, in in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter tells us that the angels long to look into these things. They long to understand what salvation really means because the holy angels were, were never fallen and never will fall. They want to understand more of what salvation is because they want to learn more about God's character. And so they're watching, they're, they're seeing this interaction of knowing that Jesus left the throne room of God and took on a human body and came down to this, this planet. And they want to understand what it means that he's a savior. And so he's more glorious because of that. In fact, those of you who know Christ as your savior, when you get to heaven and you see the risen Christ, you will see the scars on his hand and you will see the scar on his side because it's, a, it's, it's an eternal reminder of what he did for us by paying the penalty for sin. So when you get to Genesis 6, 6, and it says that he is sorry or he is grieved, the grief is intensified because he knew it was going to take place. 
and he sees the condition of his creation, and he's interacting, he's responding to what he sees, even though he knew it was going to happen. I want to show you something really similar. If you turn over to John chapter 11, we actually see this, well, we see it several times in the life of Christ, but I want to highlight one in particular. John chapter 11. This particular event is the turning point in the, in the earthly ministry of Christ. Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave, brings him back to life just by speaking. And when he does that, the religious leaders decide that he must be destroyed. So they set their intent on killing the Lord Jesus because of this particular event in John chapter 11. So we're not going to read through the entire chapter, but I want to set before you the, the setting and then the ending. So look at the beginning here, verse 1. This is now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day and he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anybody walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Then he said, after this, Excuse me. Then he said, and after that, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I might awaken him out of his sleep. This is another example where Jesus responds in a way that you don't really anticipate. They come and they bring news to him that, that his friend is sick. And what does he do? He stays where he's at for two more days. And then he goes. So now he, he goes to see this family that he loves. Jump down to verse 32. It says, therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him, fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Think about verse 32 for a minute. Even Mary is limiting who Jesus is. You know what she's saying? You have to be physically present to heal somebody. She believed he could heal, which is good. But she had a low view of Christ because she felt that he needed to be physically there. Verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. 
So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind and have kept this man also from dying? See, they're limiting Jesus. As long as he's alive, he can keep them alive. Low view of Christ. Verse 38. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them these things which Jesus had done. Now this account, as Jesus is talking with his disciples at the beginning of the chapter, he's telling them, I have a plan. Then when he goes to this location, he knows exactly what he's going to do. As he's standing around looking at this family grieving over the death of somebody that they love, Jesus knows literally in a couple of minutes that Lazarus is going to be alive again. And yet in verse 35, we see Jesus crying over the death of his friend. So his knowledge of the future does not lessen the grief that he sees and feels over what sin causes in the world. And then with just his voice, he calls Lazarus to come forth, and it says, the man who had died came forth. That's amazing. So we see God's holiness but we also see that he has a heart for sinful people. So now with that context to the character of God, I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 6. God creates the world. He creates man and woman. He knows that they're going to rebel. He's, he knows that they're going to rebel. And ever since Genesis 3, when they decide to break God's commandment, the wickedness of the planet just continues to increase to the point where God, in his providential timing, decides to step in and say, I'm going to blot out man from the face of the earth. God demonstrates his holiness by executing Everyone on the planet except for eight people. He's making a statement about his holiness. 
When I mentioned earlier in Mark chapter 10 that if there's any sin that you're hanging on to and that you value over Christ, you need to realize that the Bible says that God in His holiness will condemn you if you don't turn from your sin, and He will be just to do so. In fact, Peter says to the people that refused to believe that Jesus was going to come back in His second return in triumph and glory, Peter says, does it escape their notice that God flooded the entire world? If you think that you're getting away with sin and that God will overlook it or if He doesn't see it, if you think you've hidden it, God has made it very evident that you will die in your sins unless you turn from them and believe on Christ. That is your only escape. And so we see God's holiness by saying, I'm going to blot out everybody in Genesis 6. But then we also see his compassion. Look what it says in verse 8. But Noah, listen to that contrast, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's not that Noah was better. It's not that he was perfect or sinless. It says that he found favor where? In God's eyes, God is the one that bestowed favor upon Noah and he spared his family so that he could bring about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the payment for sin. So there's holiness, there's judgment, but then there is also incredible mercy and compassion and God offers a way for people to be saved. The New Testament tells us that that God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible does not require you to clean up your life because you don't have the ability to do that. While you were sinners, Christ died for you. So I want you to consider that at the end of your life, that you are going to stand before a holy God And you're going to have to give an account for everything that you've done in your life. My question to you is, what are you going to do about your sin? When all of your sin is exposed because of His holiness, what reason could you give in defense for how you've lived apart from Christ? That's why you need a substitute. You need somebody to stand in your place that is perfect and sinless. That's why in 2 Corinthians 5.21, or it says that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf, that you might become the righteousness of God. Without the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be cast away from His presence. But because of what Jesus did for us, we have a way of escape. We have the only way of escape to find eternal life. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus is exposing the condition of this falsely religious person. In Genesis chapter 6, it shows us that he knows exactly what's going to happen with mankind. And at the end of time, Christ is going to be the judge. You are going to stand before the risen Christ. And your only hope is that you have his righteousness. That's your only hope. Have you done that? Are you confident 
that your sins have been covered because of Christ. As we continue to kind of look through these questions, I just want to encourage you guys, be in the Word. I prayed for that at the beginning of the the lesson. Read your Bible. If you're not sure where you're at with Christ, the Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. So if you're unsure of your salvation, you need to be in your Bible until you find out. And you need to come and ask people that you can trust to point you to the answers in the Bible to find out your spiritual condition. Cry out to God and and tell Him, Lord, I need to know where I stand with you, and He will reveal to you where you're at. Cry out to Him, confess your sins, and believe on Christ, and let go of any sin that you are clinging to. Because Jesus says, "What, what would it profit you to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? Let's pray. Father, I ask you that you would give us understanding of the Bible as we continue to read. Father, I pray for those who have been redeemed by the blood of your Son and and those that belong to you. I know that they have a a heart and uh, a passion to tell the lost how to come to salvation. I know that they pray for those around them that that have not been saved. I pray that you would give them opportunities to talk, wisdom of how to listen, how to ask good questions, and how to lead people to the truth of the Scripture. And uh, Lord, just encourage them as they continue to read the, the Bible so they can learn more about you. And Father, if there's any soul in here tonight that is unsure, if if they were to stand before you, if they would be received, that they would not be settled tonight until they are sure. Thank you for the holiness that we see on display, but also, Father, we thank you for your mercy because um, without your Son coming, we would have no hope. So thank you for the fact that Jesus has a love for those that he has created And Father, as your children, I pray that we would just respond to you in worship and to exalt your name as you deserve. And so help us to do that, we pray. And it's in your son's name that we come to you. Amen.